0: Well, the story we are in, or sorry, the series we are in is uh, church at a crossroads going verse by verse, line by line, word by word through the book of 1 a a Corinthians. And uh, we we find ourselves at uh, at a crossroads. This church building literally is at a crossroads where 407 and 401. I know we're sort of at a dead end here on 10th line, but where 407 and 401 meet, where Brampton and Mississauga and Milton and just about Georgetown all across uh, one another, they all meet sort of at this intersection here. You might have noticed as you were driving no matter where you were coming from you might have noticed that we've recently painted the cross uh, at the very front of our building that faces the 401 and the 407 that when we moved into the building we learned that the the cross it, it only had sort of a prep coat only sort of one layer of primer on it when the building was first uh, built and so we we uh, hired a, a crew to come and to and to paint the cross and so it's been updated hopefully this is going to last for 15 or 20 years and uh, so we're thankful to uh, to have the cross sort of uh, uh sort of updated uh, in that in that way now have you ever taken a minute to just to really think like why would we want a cross on the front of our building? DA Carson points out like you don't see many buildings that have you know electric chairs up uh, you know up on the ceiling. You don't see structures built to sort of in honor of the atomic bomb or or a, a lethal injection needle. You you don't see these, these tools for destruction being put on display and yet Christians everywhere point to the cross. And, and when we point to the cross, we, we, we tell the world, our God was nailed up there. He was, he was stripped down. He was, he was whipped. He was tortured. He was mocked. And then they nailed his hands to the pieces of wood. And then they let him hang there for hours on end until eventually he suffocated to death and died. That, that ever, you, From church to church, you see Christians pointing people, look there, look there. That's what our God went through. That's what happened to our Savior. The world looks at that as the passage that Nora read the world looks at that and says that's foolishness that's that's folly in fact in in roman culture as 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 brutal as the roman world was and as familiar as people living in the roman empire were with death and with punishment and you you didn't Speak the word cross. They had different euphemisms that they used in in, in polite company. You didn't say the word. Because in saying the word, you were referring to all of, all of the suffering and all the agony that the person went through on the cross. And yet, even though this word was not it wasn't even spoken, people didn't even utter it. Now you have people like the Apostle Paul and, and, and of the other apostles going into cities and saying the word and celebrating the word and taught and boasting in the cross. And loved ones, this is what we are called to today because the cross is the source of true wisdom and of true power. The title for our message today is The Wisdom, or sorry, The Power and Wisdom of God. The Wisdom and Power of God. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 18. It says, for the word of the cross, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved is the power of God. You see, the cross divides people immediately into two categories. Let me just diagram it out for you. This is verse 18. To the perishing, it's folly. Now, our default setting is perishing. We are all perishing apart from the grace of God. But because Christ perished, because he suffered on the cross, there's a new category. There's a category of people who don't see the cross as folly, who aren't perishing but are being saved because they see it as the power of God, the wisdom of God and the power of God. The world looks at the cross and says, that's absurd, that's ridiculous, that's ludicrous. Why, why would you say that your Savior suffered in that way, that he was punished like a criminal in such a horrific way? That's offensive actually. In a world, especially the world that we live in now, that is so committed to progress, that is living under this delusion that somehow we as human beings are getting better and nicer and smarter and friendlier. This this is the whole idea of the world that we're living in, that we're somehow getting better. And that we're canceling things that, that our world believed in 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And yet here comes the Christian that says, no, no, no. We want to we turn the clock back, back 2,000 years and tell you to look at the cross. To look at the way that the Roman Empire executed criminals. The church is saying, no, no, no. Stop looking forward. Just look back for a minute. And they see it as folly. But loved ones, if we're going to keep pointing people to the cross, if we're going to keep pointing people to the wisdom of God and the power of God as it's expressed in the cross, Paul has some words for us, some some things that we need to think about, that we need to embrace, and that we need to follow if we are going to be faithful, not just for the next 15 years when the next time we have to paint the cross in the front of the building. It's not about the cross on the front of the building. It's about being faithful to the gospel and what has been entrusted to us until Christ returns, teaching it to the next generation of kids who are in our children's ministry right now, teaching it to our children, reaching our neighbors, spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. If we're going to be faithful, we're going to have to be committed to these things. The first one is this. We've got to reflect on the wisdom of God. We've got to reflect on the wisdom of God. We've got to sort of get up, you know, uh, 20 or 25,000 feet and look at the big picture and how the cross of Jesus Christ affects the big picture. So Paul has said that there's these two categories in verse 18. One, one, one group of people that are perishing, they think that the cross is folly. Another group of people, I happen to be one of them, believes that the cross is the power of God. Then he says in verse 19, For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He says, It's written. Where is it written? He's quoting Isaiah chapter 29. Let me show you uh, the, the text from Isaiah down here in the bold. The wisdom of the wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning shall be hidden. Now, you might not realize this, that's uh, Isaiah 29, 14, but if you look above it, look at verse 13. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? The Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. That's th- those two verses go hand in hand. This is also the chapter about the potter and the clay. It's all here in Isaiah chapter 29. And God is trying to communicate to the people I know your heart. You can say what you want to say, but I know your heart. And He says, You have all of these wise plans, but you got to understand I'm the potter, you're just the clay. And the immediate context here is that the nation of Judah is about to get invaded by the Assyrian army. They've already blown through the northern tribes like a buzzsaw. And they're headed towards Jerusalem. And God says, yes, they're going to surround you. Yes, they're going to have the city completely surrounded. But God says, I'm going to come through. And the wise men... Whose lips wanted to honor God. Yes, God, we believe you. But their hearts were far from them. We're saying, no, we need reinforcements. Let's call on Egypt to come and help us. That plan backfired. And the wisdom of the wise came to nothing. The discernment of the, of the discerning was ruined. The city did end up getting surrounded. The Egyptians didn't help. But many of us know the story. When when Hezekiah found himself surrounded by the Assyrian army, in one night God took care of that army. He did something that was completely unexpected. There was no amount of planning or ingenuity on part of the human beings. It was all God. And so Paul here references that story right here to say, the cross, no one saw it coming. No no one could anticipate that this was what was going to take place. And yet God, in his wisdom, thwarted all of the wisdom of this world. So then Paul lays out the challenge. Verse 20, "Where, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Who saw this coming? Who was able to predict that God was going to work in this way? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Don't miss that. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In God's infinite wisdom, in his plan, this is why we have to reflect on the wisdom of God. He did not make it so that if you're smart enough, if you think about it long enough, if you have enough intelligence, then you'll be able to figure out a way to be right with God. God in his wisdom said it's not by human wisdom that people can know God. It's not something that we can achieve. We we can't work it out ourselves. We are in fact helpless and hopeless But it's all because of God and his wisdom. Going on in verse 1, it says, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's pleasing to God. For me to get up Sunday after Sunday and point people to the cross. To you to, to, to tell your, your, your children and your teenagers and your young adult kids and your neighbors. Regardless if they think it's folly. Regardless if they ignore. God is pleased that in, the, in what seems like folly to save those who believe. This is the wisdom of God. Verse 22 says, For Jews demand signs... And Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. The Jewish people, they, they demanded signs. They did this when Jesus was walking on the earth. Let me show you. Matthew chapter 12, we're familiar with this. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. I mean, he had already fed thousands of people. He's walking on water. He's healing the sick. And they're like, we'd like to see a sign. Jesus, I, if I were Jesus, I'd be like, uh-huh. You mean another sign? And so so Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the sign of the cross, the sign of the tomb, the sign of Christ dying and being buried and then resurrected, just like Jonah was was buried into the belly of the fish for three days. Another time, it referenced in John chapter 12, the book of John is called the book of signs because every time you turn around, Jesus is performing another miracle. It says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. It wasn't the absence of signs that prevented the Jewish people from, from believing. In him, and yet they continued to demand more and more. They wanted to believe in Jesus on their terms. They wanted their kind of signs. It didn't matter whatever sign Jesus was performing, they wanted it on their terms. It says in verse 22 that Jews demand signs, and then it says, Greeks seek wisdom. Greeks seek wisdom. Just just north of Corinth was the city of Athens. And that, that was sort of the epicenter of, of of Greek wisdom or Roman now wisdom. And whether they were Stoics or whether they followed Plato or Aristotle, whatever whatever system they were committed to, it wasn't that they were just trying to find the most wise way and they just didn't think Jesus' way was wise enough. The problem with the Greeks is they already had their system. The Stoics had their system. There was an Aristotelian system. There was a Platonic system. Everything fit together. And what they were doing is they were looking at their system and then they looked at the cross and they said... That doesn't fit with our system. It doesn't work with our worldview. So we reject, we call it like it's not wise. But the problem is it just doesn't fit with what we've already decided the world is about. So Jews seek signs, Greeks seek wisdom. Same thing today. We how many people of you would how many conversations have you been in with a neighbor or with a coworker, and they just say if God could just show me a sign right and you're just like uh-huh right the fact that you're taking oxygen into your lungs right now the the, the fact that that the the historicity the the historical validity of Jesus and the and the and the resurrection is so rock solid have you taken three minutes to even investigate the claims? What kind of a sign are you looking for? And what would you, if the sign came, does that mean that you would be fully on board? Because if, if God does his part and give you the sign that you're demanding, are you willing to be all in and do your part? The truth is, people just use signs as a, as a way of delaying, of putting off the decision well, I, just, I, I need more proof. I need more evidence. Some people are like the Jewish people in Paul's day, demanding signs. Other people are like the Greeks, demanding wisdom or seeking wisdom. We already have our minds made up. Here's the box of how the world works. And whether, whether, it's, a, whether it's a total and complete faith in science so that science becomes a religion. And so unless I can figure out how the Bible can fit into my box of science. Then I'm not going to believe it. Or my system, my political system of, 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 of capitalism or socialism. Or, or the dynamics of power and oppression. Unless I can get the cross to fit in my system. Then I won't, I won't accept it. Some seek for signs, some seek for wisdom. You see, the issue here, though, is we have people evaluating God rather than recognizing that it's God who's evaluating us. It was true in Paul's day. It's so true in our day. We have people trying to see if if God and Christianity and Jesus are good enough for me, do they meet my standards for me to be able to follow him? That's not how it works. C.S. Lewis describes this as, as God in the dock. Not like a Muskoka dock, but in, in, uh, in, the, in the UK, you have the judge who sits on a bench, and then the, the accused, the person who, who is on trial, they sit in a place called the dock, and, and And C.S. Lewis said, we have it all backwards. God's supposed to be on the bench, and we're supposed to be in the dock. We're the ones who are guilty. We're the ones who are on trial, and yet we've flipped it all around. We've put ourselves in the bench. We're acting as judge, and we're treating God like he's on trial. The whole thing is backwards and upside down. Jewish Gentile alike, whether they're seeking signs or seeking wisdom, they're seeking to follow God on their own terms. Verse 23 says, but we preach Christ crucified. Paul says, take it or leave it. We focus on the message of the cross. We're not going to follow you down all these demands for signs. We're not going to try to... conform our message to fit into your system or worldview of thinking no we preach Christ crucified he says a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles a stumbling block to Jews why is it a stumbling block because the word Christ and the word crucified don't go together in the Jewish mindset they were anticipating a Messiah. That's what Christ means a Messiah, this warrior hero who was going to rescue the people through military deliverance. He was, he was going to put the enemies to death. He wasn't going to die. And then to die at a, on a cross, it was a stumbling block. Here's why. They, they they read passages in the Old Testament like Deuteronomy chapter 21 that says if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and is put to death and you hang him on a tree his body shall not remain all night on the tree but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. This is why they were in such a hurry in the uh, in the gospel narratives to make sure Jesus gets underground. It gets underground quickly because They they understood that he was hanging there. It wasn't on a tree, but it was on a cross. Crucifixion wasn't invented when Deuteronomy was written. But they were applying the principle, saying, we got to get Jesus buried. Because this guy is cursed. And we don't want his curse to spread throughout the land. So how can you have a cursed Messiah? How can you have a crucified Messiah? But then Paul clarifies in Galatians 3, this is what was happening. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He wore a crown of thorns. Thorns were a sign of the curse from the Garden of Eden. It is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 21. It's the wisdom of God. God beat death through dying. He destroyed the curse by having Jesus become a curse. He flipped it all on his head. Reflect on the wisdom of God. So it was a stumbling block to Jews and it's folly to Gentiles. Paul's using the word Gentile, the word Greek uh, uh, interchangeably. Because it didn't fit within their system. So if we follow our flow chart here, you've got the cross, divides it into two categories, those who are perishing and those who are being saved, and then divides it into two other uh, categories, Greeks and Jews. The Greeks seeking wisdom and the Jewish people demanding signs, both of them wanting to follow God on their own terms. So you either believe and you're saved, or you're offended by the cross like Jewish people or you are, or you are, you ridicule the cross, like, like the Gentiles or the Greeks. Verse, tw- verse 24 says, "But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Why doesn't Paul say the wisdom of God is wiser than men? Why does he say the foolishness of God? Is there, can God be foolish? I, I don't know if that's possible for God to be foolish. What Paul is doing here is saying, this isn't a matter of degrees. We're not scaling this out. We're not saying, well, human wisdom, that's like a 3 out of 10. And God's wisdom is more like a 7 out of 10. There's no, there's no degrees of wisdom separating God's wisdom. from They're in completely different categories. That's why Paul says, you know, the folly of God. God, is wiser than the wisdom of God so he wants them to reflect on the wisdom of God then he gets personal because he he ended off in in verse 24 saying those who are called now look with me at, at verse 26 he says for consider your calling he, he wants to talk to them he was there in Corinth when the church got started so he says remember your calling so The first thing we got to do is reflect on the wisdom of God. The second is to remember the calling of God. Remember the calling of God. Think back to your, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, think back to the time where God reached out to you, where you received and believed in the gospel. Remember the calling of God. He says in verse 26, Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Notice in verse 26, three times he says, Not many, not many, not many. And then in verse 27 and 28, he says, God chose, God chose, God chose. And everything that he's saying here, it all parallels one another. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 26, he says, not many of you were wise, powerful of noble birth, but God chose, verse 27 and 28, the foolish, the weak, the low, and despised. So not many of you were wise, but you were chosen, and God chose the foolish. Not many of you were powerful, but he chose you. He chose you, the weak. Not many of you were of noble birth, but he chose you. You were the ones who were low and despised. He's reminding them of their calling. This is similar to, you know, remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. He had this big crowd of people around him. And it seems like he's building this movement and all of these followers. And then Jesus opens up his mouth and he says, blessed And he doesn't say blessed are the wealthy and the successful. He says blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek and humble. Because Jesus came to turn the world upside down. And he, he, he chose that which is weak. He chose that which is poor in order to... In order to show his wisdom. So we got to reflect on our own calling. Imagine. Imagine if you were given the task of transforming planet earth. The, 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 the very fabric of the way humans interact with one another. And the environment and the past and the future. Imagine if you were tasked with. You have to influence the entire planet. And you got to build a team. You're building a team of 25 people that would be able to, to build this, 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 this infrastructure of completely changing the world. Now chances are that you would choose some people with influence. You you would want to get on board some some athletes, some celebrities, some social media influencers. You would want some some of the intellectual and political and social elites. You would want some branding experts. You would would want some wealthy people to help finance the project. But God chose to choose that which is low and despised. God chose to, to choose the things that are not not many of you, he says, were of noble birth. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were wise. But notice the key word in verse 26. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. The way God sees us and the way the world sees us are two very different things And we spend way too much time as a Christian community in general and as individuals. Way too much time and energy is worried about what the world thinks about us. How we're being judged by the world's standards. And what was true in Corinth is true today. We don't measure up to the world's standard. We're not heading in the same direction. We don't share the same values. He says, not many interesting D.A. Carson uh, mentioned uh, a story of a woman named uh, Selena Hastings she was the Countess of Huntingdon and uh, she was very very wealthy she was of noble birth she was a countess and uh, she said um, I was saved by the letter M and she was reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26 where it says not many of you were of noble birth. And she says that letter M saved her because if it said not any then she wouldn't have been welcomed into the kingdom. And this isn't a simply, it, we're not simply saying that, that the gospel is only available to, to people of a certain economic status or political status or social status. The, the gospel is available to all And she says that she was saved by the letter M. She was one of the people who helped fund ministries like George Whitfield, who spread the gospel all throughout Europe and North America. We've got to remember the calling of God. And because it's not about us, we don't boast. Look at verse 29. It says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I mean, verse 30, just verse 30 alone is its own sermon. It's its own sermon series to say that Jesus is the wisdom of God and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. So I don't have a whole sermon or a whole sermon series right now, so let me just sum it up as best that I can. But if you're looking for a verse to kind of meditate on and think about, to sum up all that Christ is, so Paul told us that we're weak and we're lowly and we're nothing, but Christ is everything. He's righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He's the wisdom of God. You see, when we point to the cross, we point to Christ. We remember that it's not what we did. It's not about our achieving. It's about our receiving what Christ has done for us. Wisdom from God in contrast to the world. Christ is the wisdom from God. God. He is our righteousness. That's a legal term referring to the removal of our guilt. Paul describes it other in other ways as our justification that where we're declared innocent that at the cross the perfect life that Jesus lived is counted to us. He took our sin and we take his righteousness. He has become for us righteousness so that when God looks at the life of Ted Duncan he doesn't see 42 years of stumbling forward and sinning and repenting and ups and downs he looks at my life and sees 30 years of sinless perfection by a carpenter's son in Nazareth that's what God's I I now have the righteousness of Christ when God looks at me he looks at me as though I lived the life that Jesus lived that's what the cross does for us. It accomplishes righteousness. And you can have that righteousness here today. If you don't yet know Jesus Christ, you can have your slate wiped clean. And you can be declared righteousness. It's, you haven't done too much. It hasn't been too long. You haven't wandered too far. You can have the righteousness of God. And then sanctification. Oftentimes we think about sanctification in terms of a process, progressive sanctification, becoming more holy. But when Paul is using this term here, he's using it not progressively, but positionally. The idea of being set apart and devoted to and belonging to. Belonging to God. Being welcomed into his family. Being declared holy. God didn't just want to make us innocent and righteous. He wanted to make us his and so we, he, we, are, we have sanctification in Christ, belonging to God, and then redemption, which, we, which is the term used in the book of Exodus, the, the freeing of people from slavery. So many things enslave us, fear enslaves us, lust enslaves us, addictions enslave us, and we have freedom, not through our hard work or our wisdom, in Christ, verse 30 tells us. Therefore, verse 31 says, As it is, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Paul here is quoting Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Think about everything we've studied so far, and look how this verse fits so perfectly. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Not many of you were of noble birth. Don't let the rich man boast in his riches. Not many of you were strong, but God chose the wise. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, but boast in this that he understands and knows me see when we point people to the cross and when we stay centered on the cross as we reflect on our calling the calling of God it reminds us time and time it cuts us down to size it reminds us of who we are and who God is and what he has accomplished for us so loved ones We've got to keep the cross at the center. We've got to reflect on the wisdom of God. We've got to remember the calling of God. And then lastly, we've got to rely on the power of God. We've got to rely on the power of God. This is the text that Jameson read during our our congregational singing, during our worship time. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech, or wisdom. Paul didn't come like the other Corinthian uh, speakers, the other wise philosophers of the age. He didn't come with eloquent wisdom. He didn't come with the aim to impress people. He didn't come with the, uh, with the aim to entertain people. He just came to talk about the cross. He says in verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now this may sound a little bit ridiculous, like if you were to read it at face, va- face value, I decided to know nothing among you. Hey, uh, hey Paul, uh, what do you wanna have for lunch today? I don't know. I don't know what I want to have for lunch today, but one thing I know, because I know nothing except this. I know that Jesus, hey, hey, Paul, do you think it's going to be, think it's going to be sunny this afternoon? And We're hoping to have a pick. I don't know if it's going to be sunny this afternoon. One thing I know is that, is that, hey, hey, Paul, uh, do you, is your name Paul? I don't know if my name is Paul, but one thing I, that's, that's what he's saying, because <laughs> Paul was, Paul was very eloquent and Paul, you read Acts chapter 17, right before he got to Corinth in Acts chapter 18, he's quoting Greek philosophers and poets to try to prove his point. So it's, it's not like he said, he just sort of said, the cross, the cross, the cross, I know nothing about the cross. But the message of the cross and his commitment to preaching the wisdom and the power of God, everything else was subservient to that. That he, he knew where the power lied. He knew that, yes, he can use an illustration from the world. Yes, he can quote a poet or a philosopher. Yes, he can speak to the current political or social situation. But he knew that the power wasn't there. All of those things were subservient to getting to the message of the cross. The cross must be central. Then look at what he says in verse 3. He says, and I was with you. In weakness and in fear and much trembling. It doesn't sound like the Apostle Paul. I mean, when I read Acts, I don't see a lot of weakness or fear or trembling. So I had to go back. I mean, what was happening with Paul when he arrived in Corinth? And we have the advantage of having the book of Acts and having the letters of Paul. We can sort of read them side by side. And look what I found. In Acts chapter 18, remember... That when he first went into the synagogue, they opposed and reviled him. And I think all of us at different times in our lives have experienced opposition. I think all of us maybe at different times have felt reviled by other people. But maybe something happened at Corinth where things really started to wear on him. This is now his second uh, um, missionary uh, journey. This isn't his first rodeo. He's been around the block a bunch of times and... Maybe he was starting to grow weary from all of the opposition. Because look, God appeared to him in a vision. And he said, he said, do not be afraid. Paul said right here, I came to you with fear and weakness. God had to personally appear to him and say, do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. Like Paul's thinking about quitting at this time. God appears to him and says, no, keep going, Paul. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. Paul came. He was wounded at this point. And sometimes we have these these pictures of, of the heroes in the Bible. They're almost not human. Nothing bothers them. Nothing hurts them. But Paul was hurting in Corinth. He was filled with weakness and with fear. So much so that God had to appear to him in a vision to encourage him to keep going. Loved ones, I'm, I'm learning more and more. And Paul clearly, as he's talking about the power of the gospel, he mentions his own weakness. Loved ones, weakness is is the backdrop through which God wants to display his power. When God wants to work, he takes a person or he takes people or he takes a church and he puts them in a position of weakness to get everything ready. It's almost as though his power won't be welcomed or recognized unless weakness comes first. And i I just got to say just i'll just i'll be the first to admit it i really don't like weakness like really i don't like not knowing the answers i don't like not having a plan i I don't like feeling, at least I know i got to trust in the Lord, but I like to have a little bit of confidence in myself. And yet, maybe this has been true for you. This has certainly been true for me over the last 12 years in pastoring this church. Just time and time again, God just keeps telling me, Ted, I just need you to be a little bit weaker. I need you to feel a little less confident in yourself. And you, you sort of start up here. It's like me and Jesus. And then it just sort of keeps getting Harder and harder and harder. And this is what Paul went through. And loved ones, if if you're in a place where you're just feeling weaker, and you keep trying to love your neighbor, you keep trying to win over your unbelieving spouse, you keep trying to, to bring back your wandering young adult or teenage child. You keep trying to be faithful in, in, in having your kid in public school or trying to homeschool or whatever sort of school you're doing, right? You're trying, you're trying, but you just feel weaker and weaker and weaker. The answers are no longer at the tip of your tongue. You understood it all in theory but it's blowing up in front of you in practice. But it's in the weakness where God is setting the stage to demonstrate his power. Verse three, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God paul understood what this great 80s gospel song communicated so clearly if you don't know this song you got to get this on your spotify like immediately following this service the williams brothers here's the lyric of the chorus i'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody i'm just a nobody And God uses, we either choose to humble ourselves or He uses humiliation in our lives to wake us up to that truth. We're clay pots, we're ordinary. Not many of us were wise, not many of us were of noble birth, not many of us were powerful. We're just nobodies. And to sing, I'm a nobody with a smile on your face. Where our whole world is saying, you gotta prove your worth. You gotta show that you're somebody. You gotta show that you have what it takes. No, I'm just a nobody who's trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. That's our calling. That's what Paul was about in weakness. He says that his speech, his message in verse four, Was not with plausible words of wisdom, but the demonstration of spirit and power. Now some people read this verse to think that he's talking about miracles. That he demonstrated the spirit's power with miracles. But he doesn't mention miracles. He's only talking about his message. His message. I'm not denying that Paul performed miracles. I'm not denying that miracles can still happen today. But the message has power. That's what he's been saying all of this time. That pointing people to the cross has power. That there is power simply in the message. The spirit demonstrates power when we simply stick to the message. When we stay on script. And the result then, Paul says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. Paul says, don't rest your wisdom in me. But rest your wisdom in the power of God, the power of the cross. Loved ones, if someone sees our neatly painted cross on the 401 and chooses to come inside here, and if they see greeters and ushers that are really friendly and a Hope Kids ministry that's loving on children, and if they hear the music and they hear the preaching loved ones if they if they walk away from here and say what a great church we fail if someone walks out of here on a sunday morning and they say whoa what a a great preacher i i failed Loved ones, because the power of the cross and the necessity of preaching the cross, the power and the wisdom of God necessitates that people do not walk out of here and say, what a great church, or or what a great preacher, but they walk away from here and they say, what a great savior. The power of God met me here. Loved ones, that's what we're going after. This is where the power lies. This is where true wisdom is found. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we're trusting that your spirit is working even among us right now, Lord. God, forgive us for the times where we try to be wise according to worldly standards. Forgive us for the times where we think that we need to be slick in our presentations. God, forgive us for our deluded pursuit of relevance. God, help us to resolve to know nothing but the cross. And God, help us in this moment right now as, as we uh, respond as a church family, as we lift up our voices, as, as we reflect on your wisdom and remember our own personal calling and how you met us and chose us. And as we, as we come and And resolve to rely on your strength and not on our own. Lord, I pray. I pray that you would meet with us in power. As we zero in on the wisdom and the power of God and the power of the cross. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.